to episode two of Creative Footnotes. Today is a very special day. I have our guest today is someone who has inspired me from day one. It is none other than my own father, Wayne Whitley, who is not only a video maker extraordinaire, but many other talents as well. So I welcome my dad to my closet. <laughs> for this second episode of Creative Footnotes. Well, hi, Leia, and thank you very much for inviting me to your podcast. This is exciting for me. We're going to just dive right into the stories. There's a lot to cover, so hang on to your seats. Uh, we're going to do the best we can in uh, delivering lots of content in a little short time frame here. Um so I'm curious, what was your first experience taking photos or making videos? When I was uh, 12 years old, I uh, somehow found a brownie camera, which was a Kodak uh, manual camera, film camera. And uh, I started experimenting with this camera, uh, but realized quickly that uh, with film, um, I could get about one good picture out of 20 <laughs> shots. So it was uh, a little bit expensive, but I did learn some of the things, I guess, just by using a manual camera. Yeah, there's definitely a learner's curve to film, but especially in a time where you couldn't necessarily pick up your cell phone and Google what you did wrong. <laughs> How did you troubleshoot? Like, what was your learning process like? Well, like most of the learning process that I used uh, in those days, it was trial and error, and and probably more error than than anything else. <laughs> but at least it it gave me some some ideas about what I could and couldn't do with that little piece of equipment. But uh, it was a place to start, and I think that was the the whole point of the process. Did other people in your family also do creative? things like taking photographs or was that something you fell into yourself? Well, actually my father started uh, all us kids off, I think with uh, trying to figure out creative processes. And uh, he actually uh, purchased a, a vinyl record recorder. And this was back in the fifties. And uh, it, basically what it did was it took a, a, a vinyl record that had not had anything recorded on it. And it used a, a needle, uh, like a phonograph, and he had a microphone and he used to go around with us kids uh, interviewing us. And <laughs> he would do things making sound effects like closing a door and he'd ask, oh kids, what was that, you know? And then he'd, <laughs> he'd and the last one that, that he always did was he'd flush the toilet and uh, he'd say, well kids, what's that? Oh, Dad, come on, that's just the toilet, you know? <laughs> That's fun. I feel like at some point, especially when you have kids making things, that you have these goofy uh, end products, especially when you combine parent and child, as we would both know from also past experience and letting us run around with a camera <laughs> at a young age. But um, outside of your dad doing that kind of creative stuff, did you have other kinds of mentors or people around you who helped you or a class or anything like that that you learned at as well? 
Well, I, I did. When I, when I got into junior high school, I was able to uh, take a class. We used to have electives in those days, and it was, it was a class in photography. So I learned the basics, you know, how to compose pictures, how to use lighting. Uh, we even did darkroom things where we would, uh, we would take and, and make our own, print our own uh, pictures from, from the film negatives. And uh, so it was a, a first opportunity. It lasted six weeks, so it wasn't a tremendously long, you know, period. But it, uh, you know, started some fundamentals and, and made me have the opportunity to be able to have a hands-on of, of photography. Now, I'm just curious if you remember, but were those materials like something you had to purchase for yourself? Because even when I was in high school doing photography work, we usually had to buy our own equipment outside of like, you know, the larger stuff. Like we had to buy our own film and things like that. Yeah, the, we had a, a photography lab and of course all the equipment was there. And I, I don't remember exactly whether we had to bring in some amount of money to purchase, you know, the the uh, the photo paper and, mm -hmm. and the uh, film and all that. But uh, it, I think uh, in those days we had a certain allowance that we could have so many pieces of, of uh, you know, accessories, equipment and so forth mm -hmm. to, to work on. Nice. Yeah. That's really, I think it's really awesome that, you know, in my time in high school, which was, I graduated in 2013, um, that they still have classes teaching people how to use film in darkroom, you know, and the, it's cool too, you mentioned shooting with a brownie camera and there are like many people too in our meetups who I know you've met some of that also shoot primarily on very old cameras, large format film and it's cool to see some of the older styles circling back and like, cause then you have the younger, you know, group two of people who don't even know what film is. <laughs> so it's a very interesting uh, landscape of people right now in the creative space where some people are diehard. You know, I know a few people in the space who just shoot on film nowadays, you know, even for photography sessions. And that's what makes them unique. So how does, how, what's your just like thoughts on that being as someone where that was what was originally all you had access to now? It's like a vintage niche thing. Like, what does that feel like? What is that like for you? Yeah, I think it's, it's really a wonderful thing that, that people are using some of the older, you know, technology and basically gives you uh, another perspective on on what you're doing and and your what you, what kind of creative juices that can flow because you have things that are not as automated you know today we have cameras that you put it on auto and you just point it and shoot it and everything works and you get beautiful stuff mm -hmm. but in those days when you had uh you know vintage stuff they're they're basically manual everything was manual you had to set up all the all the parameters on the camera and and you know choose your lighting and there wasn't any do-overs with it like you have today i'm curious like what i know we kind of talked about your first experience shooting pictures but i'm just curious like what were you taking pictures of and since it was so experimental did you kind of plan out some of your shots since you had a limited number or was it 
kind of an as you go kind of thing. Because I know when I first started shooting on film, ideally, I probably should have planned some of those shots. I don't think that I did. <laughs> but I'm curious, like we would shoot at school, you know, so we were shooting plants and stuff around campus. And I'm curious what you were naturally drawn to. Yeah, I don't know that in the days, especially with the Brownie camera, I had any thought at all about what I was <laughs> shooting. But, uh, you know, we would shoot almost anything, uh, just, you know, pictures of each other or of whatever buildings. Uh, even when I got my first SLR camera uh, and shooting slides, uh, Kodachrome, Ektachrome, uh, I was shooting dumpsters, dogs, you, you <laughs> name it, anything that, that I could just find, you know, some different things to be able to, to have pictures of and see how they came out. You know, and that's funny that you say that because I think that's like true of a lot of, well, A, your learning process and taking photographs, but then also like they say, you know, film, it has its own look. And although like then there wasn't necessarily something to compare it to digitally, I just think it's funny to hear you say that, you know, you would take pictures of dumpsters or really whatever, because they there's a joke, a running joke kind of that you can take pictures of anything on film and it'll look kind of cool because it has that aesthetic to it, that vibe. So it's just funny to hear that as like, oh, I would just take pictures of this. And <laughs> But it is interesting, like how many different ways that film can look too. That's just a whole nother topic. But um, creatively, then you started off, you were taking pictures, running around, making sounds with your dad and recording those. And then so that led to you having a fascination with music as well. And what was like what, what got you into music back then outside of like your dad recording on vinyl and things like that? Well, I think uh, in the time we would take popular music, you know, everybody would have their favorite group or their favorite band or whatever. And of course, when I was, uh, I guess, 12 or 13 years old, I was uh, keen on, uh, I guess it was country Western music. You know, there was, and a lot of it was instrumental music. And I would, I would listen to that on, uh, we had at those time long play vinyl records uh, didn't have uh, CDs and things like that in those days. But I would pick out a particular uh, song or group that I liked, and, and then I would listen to them, and I'd try to sing along with their music. And, you know, that was kind of my first introduction into into music. <laughs> I did, Was there like a, again, we're digging deep in the memory bank here, but was there like a radio station that you remember that you liked to listen to? Yeah, back in those days, uh, we lived in Miami, and there was a radio station that was an AM station called uh, WQAM, and their disc jockeys would play all the, the, the latest records of those times. And they were, this has been a long time ago, so I'm talking about, you know, the Ventures uh, playing uh, Walk, Don't Run, and, and maybe Elvis Presley singing, you know, You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog, stuff like that. So that's what we'd listen to from the radio stations. And uh, that was kind of, you know, as kids, that was something you, you, would, you would get hooked on. <laughs> was there like a, did you have a, a jockey that was your favorite? Like, was there a show? Well, there there was, but that, that was later on. I, I had actually uh, been in a band. Uh, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here, but I was in a, in a band that we used to work for the radio station doing uh, sock hops for uh, after school sock hops. This was the deal. We did. 
And so we would play music for, you know, teenagers in those days. And uh, WQAM, we had uh, Ruby Young, I think. And uh, gosh, I can't remember the other folks, but uh, they were they were uh, they were interesting to to listen to. And they they gave us something to do. So that was fun. Oh, that's awesome. I uh, for the young, uh, closer to my age folks out there, I think the the carrying weight for me in radio shows was Delilah, and I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. she's still on the air. Yeah. Um, she's just going to be on the radio forever, I think. Um, <laughs> but what was your, what led you into wanting to play music since you mentioned being in a band? Once you already started liking it, like, did you think like, oh, I want to be what makes the sound? Or did you just like singing or how did that come about? Well, I think it was the fascination, first of all, with instrumental uh, songs and and guitars were my favorite instrument that I that I'd like to hear, and so I I guess I decided hey that looks like one I might learn how to play so I at Christmas time uh, I asked uh, Santa to bring me a guitar and I think I was I was thirteen at the time and I guess I should have known there wasn't a Santa in those days but anyway. <laughs> um, I got a guitar. I got my parents got me a guitar, a plastic six-string guitar, and uh, I plunked on that thing for a while uh, until finally I got to where my mom said, uh, "Okay, you can stop now." <laughs> well, you're entirely <laughs> self-taught, right? Essentially, well, almost. I tell people that uh, I had uh, two. I had two lessons, two half-hour lessons from a fellow who came out to the house and he had a banjo and he was teaching me how to play guitar with his banjo. So I, I, think, <laughs> I think that was the reason why I only had two lessons. And after that, I just kind of, uh, well, I had a neighbor that played uh, country music and uh, I used to go over there and listen to him play and try to learn from him. So there was the first influences on, on guitar music. What were like some of the highlights of your journey through being a musician? Uh, highlights. We had highlights and lowlights. Um, in in those days, uh, everybody wanted to 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 be in a band. You know, hey, we get the band together and let's go play. Well, I I did. Uh, I was in a number of different bands in in the Miami area. They used to call them garage bands in those days. And we would do basically cover songs. So we'd cover different artists, you know, the Beatles, Rolling Stones, uh, uh, the British Invasion was going on in those days. This was 1964. So uh, we used to learn their songs and we play those. And I mentioned about the sock hops for the radio station. We'd play a lot of those songs uh, in the sock hops. <laughs> we, were a, we were a four four member band. I played rhythm guitar. We had a lead guitar player. We had a drummer. And uh, we had a bass player. So that was the four-person group. Uh, the, the band's name was The Stops. And the only reason it was called The Stops is we had a stop sign that was an icon that people recognized. Uh, so that was our symbol. But I think some people would say, it's time for you guys to stop. <laughs> I can only imagine, though, in that time period, if you were able to play guitar and play a Beatles song like you could get take anyone on a date <laughs> like that would be instant date material that's hilarious oh my gosh 
Um, and then at some point you actually, I was just thinking about this as you were talking, you actually taught guitar lessons for a little while there. Uh, yes, I did. But before we get on there, you mentioned about uh, uh, playing guitar. That was actually another reason why I wanted to learn guitar, because uh, girls like people who played guitar. <laughs> it's so, so true. Uh, so that was something that, uh, yeah, that was one of the reasons. That's a motivator I, right there. Yeah, yeah. And it's worked for me all, all through my, all through my uh, musical career. But, you heard uh, it from here. Tried and true. Tested. Get a guitar. You can get women. <laughs> Oh, yeah, but now I see you made me forget the question. What was the question again? <laughs> I, I got thinking about girls and guitars. So uh, you uh, taught guitar lessons uh, for a little bit. Like, I feel like I do really enjoy teaching people about photography, but I've done it in my own kind of space. Like, I haven't done it in a structured space. And I feel like it, in certain instances, it can take a lot of a different level of patience and understanding of something to teach it to someone, especially with less understanding of it. Um, so I'm just like, what was it like to instruct people, especially like something that you really enjoyed doing? I, I did teach guitar uh, and mainly it was to, to younger students. And um, what I realized from that, and again, I had, I had some, some very good students and I had some, uh, other students that the only way, well, let's put it this way. My philosophy is the only way you're going to learn something is if you have, first of all, a passion for it and time uh, invested in practice, in experimentation, all that, mm -hmm. that stuff. And, and the difficulty I had when I taught was, was getting students to basically, after I showed them some basic things to do, gave them a little homework of these, you know, go practice these chords or these, you know, different parts of a song. And they would come back the next week and, and, and I'd say, well, did you practice? They say, no, I didn't really practice. And, mm -hmm. and you, you know, you just have to have a passion for anything that you want to be successful at. Um, but, uh, you know, I was trying to, trying to, give a little bit of um, a push for folks who wanted to try to learn the guitar. And I had some folks that actually did a, did quite a nice job. In fact, they're probably mm -hmm. out there making uh, Jillian. You know, so I, <laughs> yeah, I think that that's, um, again, kind of something we talk about a little later, but something too with the internet that is, can be both beneficial and negative, depending on what people are posting is like, it's easy to see someone's polished routine as a finished result and not see all the hours of work put into that, you know, and it can be discouraging sometimes if you can't um, be real with yourself, you know, about what it takes to master something. It just does take hours. There really is no shortcut. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely know, though, that was one of my flaws growing up. Definitely something that I would go back to younger me and try to drill in a little bit more is that, you know, you do need to practice, you know, and I think it, it's good that I can self-reflect now and be like, well, I'm a perfectionist. And so I can catch why I'm acting that way, you know, because I just want it to be perfect every time I do it. So by knowing that about myself, it makes it easier for me to do bite-sized pieces towards the end result and know how I'm going to react if I'm not super good at something at first, you know, and know how to kind of direct myself into learning a little more to grow. 
But I feel like that can be a hurdle for a lot of people is just finding the time and then making the time to keep improving. Because even with shooting, right, like photos, (laughs) you have to go out and like do it a bunch of times. And like even if you don't feel like you're necessarily changing you look back at that over time and you're like, oh, wow, that that picture of a dumpster is a lot better the 30th time I did it. You know, the light's reflecting off of it. Nice. It actually kind of looks cool. Um, yeah. You know, uh, this is something I think about, too, when uh, reflecting on what you just said. You uh, a lot of times you have to take a lot of pictures to get. And, and, and separate it out from those pictures, the ones that are, that are the best you can do. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the things that um, is just part of the process. What I think is, is nice about today with digital photography is that you're not burning up film. You can erase whatever you took if you don't like it. Mm-hmm. And then you can, you can copy over by taking more pictures onto the same piece of digital media. So there are definite advantages to technology today that allow you to have, uh, what do you want to call it, uh, do-overs, right? I mean, you can yeah. do a lot of do-overs and you can, you can perfect your trade and, and you may have a perfect shot at least looking through that little viewfinder. But when you go and look at it after you make it large, it's it's out of focus, <laughs> you know, there. things like that. So yeah, uh, that's important, and I agree with you, Leah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely been there. That's a don't trust the little screen. Don't trust your viewfinder. Just always keep that in mind, my friends. Do not trust him. He lies. Um, <laughs> so then, traveling from music into other avenues. Um, you also like to make videos and it kind of started out as a way for you to kind of document your life. And more recently now you've moved into documenting airplanes, pilots, things like that. Um, which is, I think awesome to also showcase how, you know, you can practice, do different things and then evolve over time and end up in avenues that you may never even have thought before, you know, like when you were 12 holding a film camera, who thought you would be mounting GoPros to airplane wings and like making videos to put online, you know, like that's, that's a mind blowing thought right there for young you. But in your video process, like what is it and how has it changed over the years if it has? I think the expression is uh, we've come a long way, baby. And I, I think that uh, just just a little uh, aside here, my my video business or my video uh, learning and process was actually started again by my dad. Uh, he had purchased an eight millimeter film camera uh, just after he had the record recorder, uh, you know, a few years later. And he experimented with that, you know, taking home movies and the home movies were just, you know, turn it on and, and take, uh, you know, turn it off when you thought it was time to turn it off. And uh, so that, uh, you know, got me started uh, into videography. And uh, the, what I learned very quickly is sort of like with uh, still cameras is uh, you have to get something in that, um, you know, motion picture that is exciting 
that has a beginning and an end. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the rule is uh, five to seven seconds on a clip so that you can stitch those clips together and, and basically keep your audience, um, uh, you know, there. Engaged, otherwise, yeah. otherwise they fall asleep. I, they, the uh, story I used to tell when I used to shoot uh, Kodachrome slides, and in those days we had slide projectors that uh, you'd, you'd shoot, you'd project onto a screen and people would see these still pictures. Um, and I would be watching as I'm showing this thing and I'm going, wow, look at that one. Isn't that one great? Isn't that great? And I'd turn around and my family were all asleep behind me because, <laughs> you know, it put them right to sleep. They didn't get the same excitement out of it that I did. But uh, I'm, I'm regressing right now. Um, what was your question again, Leia? I forgot already. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. I kind of was all over the place. Anyways, I was just basically asked, you were explaining how shooting on a Super 8 and how your process has kind of changed from that to where it is now. Like what, what was the next evolution in that process of making videos? Yeah, it, it's a big step from uh, uh, non-talkies uh, video cameras uh, to what we have today. And the, the advantage, again, with, with motion picture cameras today is that you shoot uh, digital. Uh, I mean, I started off with, with analog uh, video cameras that, that recorded audio as well. But um, uh, through the evolution, you know, got to high definition and, and 4K and these, these ones where you, you get the better quality output of the, of the product. Um, like when you're making a plan for a video... Before you would have to remember your video camera and some film. Now your checklist is pretty much longer than that, <laughs> significantly. Yeah, I think I equate it sometimes to the pilot in his airplane. He's got a checklist, you know, to keep from crashing. He has to go through all these steps, you know, is the gas turned on? You know, do I have my radio tuned in? You know, is my seatbelt on? And you do something like that too when you cover. Uh, an event like uh, Sun and Fun in, in Orlando, I mean, in Lakeland, or um, Oshkosh has the largest uh, fly-in in the world for a full week up there. You have to remember to have everything you need to be able to capture those clips, whether they're audio, video, stills, um, and you have to make sure you got batteries that are charged, that, that everything functions. That's part of your plan. To make that all happen. And you mentioned fly-ins. Um, what are the general places that you will go, like events, fly-ins that you go to document these pilots? Yeah, I, I started out uh, basically going to uh, fly-ins, meaning uh, airplanes would, would all land in one particular place for the weekend and you'd have a campfire and you'd you just uh, tell lies about how great you fly and things like that. Um, and it evolved into these organized events. And I mentioned one, Sun and Fun, is one of the largest air shows uh, in the U.S. It's in Florida. And also Oshkosh, uh, Wisconsin, which is the largest air show in the, in, maybe in the world for that one week. Um, and in order to do that, uh, there's, a, there's so much going on up there. You have to have a plan. You have to know what equipment is going to be necessary to capture the, the footage you need. 
you have to, again, make sure that everything functions. You know, you don't know have, what footage you need. <laughs> know what footage you need and, and all that. Um, the first thing I usually do is I apply for media credentials, and that's uh, press passes, basically. And, and since I've been doing this for eight or ten years, uh, I, I get credentials fairly easily because they're used to me asking for them, and they, they know what I produce in, in the videos. What is that uh, process like? Is it relatively easy? It's relatively easy. When you go, uh, you can go on the, on the web and you, you go to the website of the, the event that's going on and they'll have a, have a media page usually and they'll say uh, you put in your application for media. And typically mm -hmm. it's, it's film media, it's television, it's all these other people that, that are there filming or documenting what goes on at these air shows. So uh, uh, it's pretty straightforward now. I, I, I'm fortunate that I get uh, approved uh, every year. And what that gives you, it gives you behind the ropes kind of access to things and gives you a badge that you can, you know, show that, uh, you know, you're there to do a job. And, and uh, so you get, you get some perks with it. You, know, you get free admission to the show, which is a big perk. Uh, typically you'll get a lot of other things that go along with that. So that's, uh, well, and good. you get a chance to interview people as well, <laughs> which is neat. Um, how do you end up asking people to interview you? Like, do you just ask random people? <laughs> well, uh, I, so far I've been, I've been kind of promoting different organizations, different manufacturers, different, uh, groups of, of, uh, aircraft, uh, folks. And what I, the way I start out generally is that, uh, you know, Hey, I'd like to, I'd like to shoot some video or some stills and so forth of your airplanes. And, you know, do you mind if I do that? And, and they look at my badge and they say, Oh, wow, this is media. Sure. Sure. And then, <laughs> so they're, they're usually very uh, happy to have you promote their product. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it's a process. When I go to interview folks, I will do the same thing. I will say, listen, I, I really appreciate what you're doing. And would you mind, uh, you know, let me give you a little interview. And of course I'll post that on my YouTube channel. And, uh, so I get, I get a lot of, uh, positive input there. And, um, uh, the kind of information that, that I'm trying to capture and, and relate there on my channel is, information about what goes on in a fly-in what mm -hmm. goes on and and what's involved and and what kind of airplanes they are and how much do they cost all those kind of questions so that when i put it up on youtube people who are interested in airplanes in fly-ins in learning about things they can see that ahead of time and say hey okay that's pretty cool i think i'll go there you know that mm -hmm. so I, I do promotional stuff a lot uh, Whitley videos on YouTube, by the way. <laughs> and speaking of pilots, you um, yourself were in the military. You're a veteran. Thank you for your service. Um, what do you think that that experience had on your creative process? Yeah, I I don't know what it's a direct uh, relationship to the creativity, but uh, the, the military, I, I tell people, it grew me up. When I was uh, 21 years old, I went into the U.S. Navy and I uh, became an aircraft electrician, which means I took care of the, uh, all the electrical stuff on airplanes. And I also was a flight crew member on uh, P-3 Orions. They're a patrol plane. So I had, 
I had uh, a lot of good training. Uh, I learned uh, procedurally how to fix airplanes, how to how to do things in a in the proper way, best practices. And I think uh, a lot of that uh, applies to what what you do as as your occupation or your hobby. Uh, if you understand that things are typically a process, and if you get that process down, then every time you have to do uh, make a new creation, you follow those steps. So I think it was important for me for a number of reasons. And um, so looking towards the future and the now, the evolution of things that you're making and how the space itself has changed. Um, what do you think that like the internet or social media has brought to the table for your work? For me, uh, it's been a game changer and I'm sure for a lot of people. Um, there was a time when I was doing what I have been doing and there wasn't an internet to do that. When I do uh, home movies or I do other kinds of uh, video or, or photography projects, or even music projects, that you had to go in and research things in a library and see, you know, hey, what kind of things are available? And and you'd look for advertisements and you, you'd have to do things more manually. Whereas today you can jump on and Google almost anything you want. And uh, by the time you've seen at least one or two or three or so second opinions, you're going to get the information that you need. And I think that's... Uh, for for filmmakers, it's really a wonderful resource. Uh, it's factual. Um, you can you can basically uh, you know put put things into your creation or use them toward your creation and feel confident that uh, you're telling a, an honest story. Absolutely, um, and I guess that ties into something that you wish people understood about what you do and what you make. Yeah, I, I, I'd like people to understand that, that what I do is, first of all, a hobby. I enjoy it very much. But I want to put something out there that is truthful, is factual, and uh, everything is satisfactory, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, sorry, that's, that's a Disney thing I threw in there. <laughs> um, and what is something that you wish you knew when you were starting out? Uh, you know, I, I never have really regretted uh, experimenting with things or learning things. And, and in this case, I didn't really have any expectations about, gee, I wish I would have would have known this or known that. Um, it, to me, every time I had the opportunity to to create something, start something new, it was a trial and error process. It, sometimes you'd go back and you'd, you'd see some steps that were done by somebody else that would give you a little head start. But for the most part, it, it's a learning experience. And you, sometimes, you know, nothing's, nothing's free. You couldn't just push a button and it automatically happened, even though there are, uh, you know, automatic settings on cameras. You still have to put in the work to understand what happens when you push those buttons. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I have never uh, thought about, gee, I wish I would have known this or that because I, I needed to learn it anyway. Yeah. Grateful for the journey. <laughs> I feel like there's um, 
definitely going to have to be a follow up um, interview here because, like, as I'm talking to you, I'm just thinking about all these questions, <laughs> like even just the impact of you know being a parent and the things that you captured versus just capturing things artistically. Um, but for now, I will tie things up with the question that we will ask every guest, which is what is something you wish for the creative collective for the next year? Well, I would say, uh, keep on inspiring creation, uh, keep learning by doing and enjoy the journey. Enjoy the journey. You heard it here, you guys, at Creative Footnotes. We're here to be grateful for the knowledge we have and the knowledge we can gain. That's a wrap for today, and we'll see you guys in two weeks. I hope you have a happy Thanksgiving. 